This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, friends. This is Josie from Speaking in Church, the podcast you are currently listening to. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about my favorite current thing right now, which is Anchor. Anchor is a free podcasting platform. Um, It's the easiest way to make a podcast. This dummy, yours truly, set it up real quick. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, which, hello, talk about easy. You don't have to be some professional computer person, which is dope. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and literally wherever else you want to put it. Uh, You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which, you know, some of us are just not going to get a million people listening, which is fine. Um, It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you want to make your own podcast about literally anything like the two of us, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey friends, welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. I am Josie. And I'm Spencer. And today we are joined by the super dope Sarah Williams. Hi, Sarah. Woot, woot. Good to be here. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Sarah is a transracial adoptee, a seminarian at Drew Theological School in New Jersey, and she graduated from APU with her degree in biblical studies before that. Uh, So she's super qualified to be on this very professional podcast. (laughs) And um, she has this really cool project that she founded. It's called Recoalition on Instagram. Um, and it's all about advancing theological or making advanced theological education accessible because, you know, all the pastors like to keep that information to them damn selves. So she's <laughs> making it so we can all have it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sarah, um, did I miss anything? Do you want to say anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like, I think because of the pandemic, I think churches and like nonprofits, like basically everyone has realized the power of social media and like the connection that it can bring that um, physical in-person like classes or like workshops or seminars just don't have you. So started like um, my adoption, like advocacy page like in March which is an Adopty Talks back um you know shout out to Moses and he revival for uh inspiring that name and then decided that you know it's time for more women of color to be at the center of conversations talking about like theological education just theology in general from the margins centering our stories our communities um in ways that like white evangelicalism just can't and is quite frankly failing because, you know, whiteness likes to center itself. So I was like, let's, I feel like technology has been not like a great equalizer, but a way to um, make it so people's voices can be heard in ways that previously haven't been. So that's my little blurb. <laughs> Sick. We love it. Sarah, um, before we get on to having these really deep conversations, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your story. Tell us your why or whatever other buzzwords people use. <laughs> my, call, my calling. Your testimony. Oh, well. <laughs> All the trauma, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was, I'm a, like, like I stated, um, I'm a transracial adoptee. So I was born in South Korea and then adopted when I was nine months old. Um, grew up in California in a white middle class, like working class uh, family. Um, so because of like that context, 
grew up in like very much like white spaces and so like throughout the years I've had a journey or and I'm still on a journey of understanding like my own racial identity as a Korean American woman in relationship to whiteness um my own internalized racism um and how that's affected me throughout like each season and stage um grew up like as an evangelical um and you, I'm sure you, this, you know, both of you are aware of like the like the damage that evangelicalism that has done and continues to do, and probably will continue to do because um, it's just like a freaking like hydra. It's just so many pieces, so many moving parts simultaneously. Um. So yeah, group uh, evangelical, um, didn't really like know what it meant to like put my faith into action and like how not to harm others. Um, just seeing the ways like um, specific faith communities continue to harm um, people of color and like the power dynamics in that. Um, and so, you know, going to APU, like being exposed via biblical studies, like critical race theory and just theology that is not white um was incredibly like liberating and a lot of deconstruction happened there um received my call if you will to go into ministry which like to be honest still figuring that out but you know I'm in seminary so hopefully <laughs> something will happen <laughs> it'll click um but yeah that's like a little bit about me and my story that's ever evolving so cool I am um, have actually been following a lot of transracial adoptee stories and um instagram accounts most famously no white saviors mm. um mostly because i do i'm not a woman who wants to birth children i'm mm. i have an undiagnosed autoimmune disorder probably that mm. leaves me with a lot of nerve pain so getting pregnant right. doesn't seem like a really smart thing to do if i don't know what's going mm. on um mm. And I don't ever plan on having enough money to transracially adopt from a different country mm, because that's like right. super expensive. Yeah. Um, but I still want to be super informed because when you adopt from foster care systems, you kind of mm-hmm. don't. It's like a mixed bag of kids. Right. Like you don't know what's going to happen or right. it needs you or whatever. But can you speak a little bit more about like... I mean, you told us about your experience, I guess, but uh, I don't know your thoughts on it, on what's happening right now, especially when it comes to like these prominent figures such as, I don't even remember her name because I try really hard not to pay attention to the Supreme Court nominee. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Coney Barrett. Yes, I yes, did. Yes, yes, she, she is getting a lot of like media time and like adoption circles because of like the because of the high profileness of like her family um and like some of the comments that have just like you know come out of her mouth basically um and like even in like um just uh like media interviews and stuff like the coded language that's there like the difference in language that is used to talk about her transracially adopted like children versus her white like her biological children um a lot of advocates have been speaking out on like adoption reform that needs to happen has always needs to happen but because again of like the power dynamics um hasn't and so yeah she's made some um damaging comments on like uh that don't, that show um, colorblindness um, as like a form of racism of like not being able to see her children um, as not recognizing like the, the bodily frame they're in like as being black in America um, and like the connotation that that's gonna have as they grow up and like leave the family and are like walking out in public on their own or um you know just experiencing life in america 
Um, and so a lot of um, advocates have been speaking out on like the need for um, just like education on like uh, throughout the process, because usually with adoption, it's like a literally is like capitalism of like you purchase a child and like that's it. There's like no accountability because of like the nature of like these people being in like siloed communities that are very much like homogeneous in the sense of like being all white. There's like little diversity there of thought or of like just like ethnically, racially, like ability, sexuality, etc. And so there's people have been speaking out of like the, of the harm that is going to happen when these adoptees have experience of double consciousness because it will happen and it happens at a very relatively young age as children are growing up and learning what it means to be in this world and are cataloging difference and belonging and disbelonging and community and all the things um so she's just been like a high profile case of like the work still needed to be done and the importance of like um people specifically listening to transitional adoptees because of the the unique positionality like because a lot of us have been grown grown up in white spaces and so can like quote unquote see both sides but have our own journeys of like disassociating from whiteness and claiming um our racial identities if you will yeah that's so interesting um because even if I don't agree with her, I try to kind of give her the benefit of the doubt because I understand, mm-hmm. like, especially people in Christian circles, I understand, like, you want to be a white savior and you want to help the cute little black kid, the cute little Asian kid, like, you want to help, but mm-hmm. you're also not helping. And yeah. so I, I want to be sympathetic, empathetic, all the things. But at the same time, I can't get over the fact that you're buying a person. Mm. And to, to yeah. add to that, one of the things that I read was an article about um, what Sarah kind of touched on, the way that she described her biological children versus her adopted children. She used a lot of language focusing on their trauma and their quote unquote problems of, oh, they've overcome and they're so strong. And I think that get that gets played into the narrative of of adoption in general, but especially transracial adoption because of the views mm-hmm. we have of the countries that people adopt from. Yeah. We think of them as less than, and we think of these children of having these of having trauma, which is valid. These children do have trauma, but their stories are always so focused on that. While her biological children, it was they're so smart, they're intelligent, they're great at this activity they're excelling in this versus which are normal things that you Mm -hmm. would talk about a child but her adopted children she focuses on these traumas instead of just saying they're in this grade and they're really good at math or they're really into this sport like something that you would talk about any other child right and that's like another critique coming from um like adoption advocates of the ways like adoption narratives are used to um, tokenize and to um, play into like the happy-go-lucky adoption narrative that is that washes away like any sense of autonomy and agency on the adopt on the adoptee's part, and so because of again like the high-profile nature, um, like yes, yeah, like wanting to give for like the benefit of the doubt and all the, these things, but also just like the nature of um, like, adop- like adoption being a very like intimate and like personal like reality, but then also having like high stakes of how people who adopt like use that narrative um, to play into like white saviorism and to really freeze their adoptee in this, this is what I have done for you which is like incredibly infantilizing and studies show like follows the adoptee as they like grow up. Like a lot of adoptees experience their parents being like, oh, well, like when I like brought you home or like, you know, growing up, you were like this cute little child or whatever, being frozen in time as this. Commodity. (laughs) Right. 
Right. And um, not having any depth or like intricacy or being allowed to have their own narrative that exists outside of their parents because that power dynamic has been so cemented. And so that's one of like the alarm bells ringing of, you know, when like our children grow up and are like 30 or 40, like everyone's going to know them because of how their mother and like their father have framed their adoption in the public conscious. And so like the need for um, adoptive parents to allow adoptees on their own terms to come into, to come to speech, if you will, um, to be able to talk back, to be able to, you know, speak their mind, if you will. Um, yeah, that's just another rambling thought. No, I love it because this is kind of a conversation I've been having with my family and extended family um, where because they can't understand the concept of a woman not wanting to incubate mm. a child in her body, they they say, you're never going to love those kids like you would love a child mm. that you birthed. And I'm like, mm. well, I love my friends just as much as I love you. So I think I'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> mm. But that idea of, and I think this plays a lot into it, right? Of this infantilization of adoptees is that's the mindset that a lot of people have that or even in the back of their minds like this is not my biological kid so therefore I can't love it as much as I do a biological kid which is not to say that all adopted parents do that but um and maybe it's just my Hispanic you know frame of view but Mm. I can't help but think that this all plays a part in white saviorism because I mean how many industries have popped up in developing countries around adoption and children Mm -hmm. being taken from their parents who can't provide for them and put into like these like adoption centers I guess but right people coming from churches to go volunteering uh orphanage in Kenya and oh my gosh, like these cute kids. And then those kids being sold to America when their parents are like down the road. And (laughs) yeah, I hear that so often now being exposed, um, which is so funny because then they get to where they're going and they can't be loved as much as their biological children. I don't know. That was also my rambling thought. Yeah, it's really gross, um, which is like, which is like, what month is it? It's October now. So November is actually um, uh, like adoption awareness month, you know, and like typically I would be like, you know, this is like capitalist, like buy, buy into it and like, you know, support, you know, this like month or whatever. But I think um, I'm excited because I mean, you mentioned like no white saviors and like they've been an account um, that's been like extremely helpful and like thinking through like um, like what happens and like how like all of these systems, especially like Christianity are implicated in like a, in um, a system like adoption. But I'm actually excited because I'm, I'm coordinating, coordinating with them and some other adoptees like a campaign um, and like midweek of November, just like educational content, if you will. Um, I do lives and stuff. Um, but that was a shameless plug because I think it'll be a good one. Ain't no shame. We love it. I was just going to say, so follow her on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. How, this is probably too personal a question. You can tell me and I can just cut this out. But how do your parents feel about all this? <laughs> uh well hopefully they'll never see this so i they're not on instagram or any i'm sure they are but like you know it's fine you know hard conversations that's what i'm all about learning to be about um so when i uh like when i first started talking about adoption in like theoretical ways because adoption is like a transdisciplinary field of study but for like my family and I, it's a very like intimate reality, something we navigate continually. She like makes it an interesting thing, if you will. So when I first started my Instagram account, um, just like talking, I really didn't, it, first it was anonymous because I was like, mm, I, I kind of knew 
like it wouldn't be like well received or like pushback because again like you know me Sarah woman of color like coming into like my own voice if you will um and so it's been like, like about seven months now and so there's been like a lot of hard conversations because of the content that I have been posting that has been more personal of like sharing explicit memories or like things I wish had been like different growing up but then again like not trying to like bash my parents and like they failed me it's just like no they didn't know but it didn't going beyond like well why didn't they know and interrogating that um and like how having to help them like navigate like white guilt and shame and like talk about like colorblindness and how that's like unhelp unhelpful like racist form of parenting that's always a fun conversation to have. Um, so it's, uh, to say the least, it's been a long journey, but I've realized because of like the nature of community that can happen online, um, I've been connected to so many other adoptees who are experiencing the same things um, on like a gradient level. Some like because of the nature of who their parents are, like more extreme cases and versions to other adoptees like still quote unquote in the fog and thinking like adoption is like this great thing and like no questions asked and yay submissiveness submissiveness and stuff so yeah it's been an interesting couple of months but I want to take it back because I, I mean it, it just plays into like the larger conversations as a nation I think I, I hope we're having on like white supremacy and like how adoption plays into that so yeah everybody wanted their rainbow families back in the um 20th century in the 70s that was a huge deal i remember hearing a lot of podcasts about it well mostly about mm. jim jones the cult leader and his rainbow family but that's a whole different conversation <laughs> oh no how do you think that the um because I'm all about bashing evangelicals. How do you think the evangelicals play into all this? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so I think besides just having like bad theology and not like having any sort of like accountability institutionally, I think that's where you come in like a lot of problems if you will when you go into specific faith communities that are evangelical but specifically i think the, the majority of people who are going overseas on these like missions trips who are you know playing into these narratives are evangelicals I think I, I just think evangelicalism is like implicated within adoption because again, who has the money to go on a trip first place? First place. Um, second of all, how is our theology and like the ways we are reading scripture, like, like almost like confirmation bias of like, yes, um, if you go into like the text and read like, the Great Commission, like that's like I think a verse that is like horribly like ripped out of context. That you know, go out into all the world, like baptizing my sons and daughters, and then you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, etc. Um, it's like one verse that is used, I think, by evangelicals to assuage um, like white guilt of like, okay, I'm doing something. If they're on like the journey of understanding their whiteness. I think a lot of people skip sitting in white guilt of like and like the implications of that and move to action too fast without like having to have critical conversations of like what does this mean? What does it mean to be in the frame I am and in? Um, what does it mean to like denounce whiteness and to move away from it um, in ways that are not harming others as I live out how I am interpreting these texts, if you will. Um, because like, yeah, all of these faith communities are interpreting texts and interpretation is inherently political. 
like how you interpret like the Shema on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Isaiah 61, those all have implications. And I think majority of the time, A, you're not talking about those texts in churches because that would mean you'd have to actually do something. We love Paul. We love like Hebrew poetry, you know, on a good day, we love like Genesis, uh, Moses, but again, we're talking, yeah. So it's an entire system that needs everyone and all voices and all people and all bodies. But I think when you walk into an evangelical Christian's doors, you quickly know who's in and who not, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't. And it's, I know a lot of people are leaving evangelicalism, but I'm also, Of the, of the frame of mind, you can, I think there are ways to work within the system to enact change. So I think, um, which is why I think maybe for like in my naivety, I still have like maybe a half a foot in the door, if you will, of like believing that like change can happen. It needs to happen because like white American evangelicalism like needs to die quite frankly um because of the harm it's doing i don't even know where i'm at now but like mm-hmm. how we even got to this conversation but here we are no i love it i mean i used to attend a church that i was trying so hard and wishing so much that i could be like this change because they um it was a baptist church and they uh, when the baptist church split they went with the side that said that women could not preach and not lead Mm. men and which is incredibly frustrating right (laughs) (laughs) also mind you and not to be like an asshole but like all the most educated people in that church were women and Mm. especially in my yeah so it's just like anyways (laughs) (laughs) So I tried so hard to like stick it out, but then once I found like, not that love changed my life, but like once I found my partner and I Mm. would take him to this church, it was just so fucking embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think the last time we went, the interim pastor at the time put up a picture of like Donald Trump on the screen as like a joke. I mean, granted, everybody was fucking Republican in this church, right? But I'm like... (laughs) I know you're joking, but I don't need this in fucking church right now, okay? Like, right. I, and I would just leave angrier and angrier, and I could just not deal with this church that was run by white people with Hispanic people in the congregation mm. really sitting in whiteness and accepting it and right. loving it and only wanting to pursue evangelicalism in a really outdated way um mm. leaving no room for anybody else because i understand that people are going to believe things that are different than me and i totally accept that and that's fine but when there's no room for you in the pew because you're right. a feminist and because you are smarter than all the people around you <laughs> or more educated on paper and in person because i know all these people um mm. that is just so frustrating because i mean I'm pretty arrogant to say that I'm was smarter than these people, even though I know that for a fact. Um, but I, I should be allowed to be educated, right? Like in a church, and eventually I just had to leave and accept that it was not it was not my journey to fix this church. Mm. I didn't have to do it. And uh, Kevin Garcia, I don't know if you know who that is. He's an author. He wrote um, mm. "Bad Theology yeah. Kills." Yeah. Yep. Yep. So he, I follow him on Instagram, um, and we're kind of friends, just like a little, mm. little na- I don't know very many semi-prominent people, so Kevin Garcia is the one I know. <laughs> but uh, he talked about, like, just stop going to these churches. Like, stop going to churches mm. that don't like gay people. Stop going to churches that don't like women in leadership. And to your point of saying, like, white evangelicalism just needs to die, I think that's how we kill it. We just stop mm. engaging and stop mm. attending churches that don't want to make space for you yeah i mean i think yeah um i think like my, my 
I guess like my only, I mean, I would have to read his book to like get his whole argument and like all those things. Feel like a part of me is like, yes, like I feel like so much more alive when I'm like not sitting, like listening to a pastor be like, Sarah, you can't preach because of like your organs, you your know? Genitals, as I like to say, <laughs> genitals. <laughs> um, and, but then like knowing like, like the power of like having a, a body that disrupts spaces. I think when uh, I think that was my only pushback on like to stop going because then I think we're like we're all we're in these silos and like echo chambers of thought, which is like first of all coming from like evangelicalism. I'm like, oh my god, yes, liberation, you know, freedom. Um, and then I think having time and like space to like heal or like gain my bearings if you will find community I think part of me has been like well what does it look like to go back and engage still have like structure like communities in place that can like give me like spiritual care and like reassurance that well I I don't know if like if we all leave like what is that you know like what are those implications and like just like knowing that my body like me myself and I make people uncomfortable just by showing up and by speaking but then also like of course like as you're saying the, the emotional labor labor like psychological toll it takes to show up um and to be the one like doing a lot of the groundwork that's like backbreaking so I don't use that word lightly but yeah um maybe I'll get to it maybe Kevin Garcia is at the point where I maybe will be in five years I'm just like I'm done goodbye shalom good luck best of luck but yeah. for now it's like yeah I mean granted there's other spaces I- I'm all about starting something new like leaving and then doing the new thing mm. and saying like I don't like what you're doing so I'm just gonna we're just gonna do something else now mm. but I like I like what Sarah said about the echo chamber, though, because um, I went to a mega church and I interned there for a few years and it was a very racially diverse church, which is something I really wanted. And I learned so much from women and men of different races and ethnicities. But one of the biggest reasons I left is because of my support for the LGBTQ community. Um, Mm -hmm. But I have a hard time because I... I learned so much in that community and I know for a fact that there are people within that community that are supportive and fully inclusive of the LGBTQ community, even if the church as a whole isn't. Mm. And when you, when you're just speaking about like the echo chambers and showing up and sort of being disruptive and not even in like an aggressive way, but just saying like, I'm valid because I exist. And when you go into a, like, if everybody starts to leave because they don't agree, then what about the people that show up and don't know that there are people that agree? And then they go to this place and all they see is people who don't agree versus like mm-hmm. being sort of like a lighthouse in this dark place of like, hey, you're not alone. Like, I, I agree with you over here. And like, I see that you're valid and I see that your existence has meaning and purpose. And yeah, so I think that I think I'm in that hard space too of now I go to an open affirming church, but I don't think like, I mean, in just full transparency, like my husband and I are looking into moving to a different state into a community Mm. that doesn't have a lot of the same opportunities for inclusion that California does. Mm. And so I, my own personal view, I couldn't not go to church. So even if I couldn't find a church that wasn't fully affirming, I would have to find a community that at least had some sort of room to grow in. And mm. again, even if I was only one of the other two people in there that were fully inclusive, like if somebody shows up that needs that, then I want to be there for that. You know what I mean? I think it's super situational um, in the sense that like, there are some churches where you can be different, but that's like yeah. not a space in evangelicalism that's really popping up anymore. I mean, cause you see like, not to call out Hillsong, but I'm going to call out Hillsong. <laughs> I mean, you can go to Hillsong and I've had friends who have like been part of their worship team or whatever. And as soon as you say something different, you're not allowed to serve. 
Uh, you're not mm. allowed to be part of the larger picture. You can sit in the pews and give them your money, but you can't right. actively enact change because that's just the systems that they've set up. Um, right. And I do think it's important for people to know that there are people that love them out there. But I guess I just think of things in the frame of like the capital C church, like being a Christian in general that um, is open and about their affirmingness is important but I don't know how important it is for you to sit in a pew if that person's not going to be able to sit in the pew after one time like Mm. you can be in that community but if the community isn't safe for them they're not going to stay right and I mean Sarah I think you're in a really good position in the sense like you're going to go get educated and be a pastor with a degree or whatever um and you have like you can start the newness and you can be that educated seminarian um the are you getting your mdiv yes mdiv you can have your mdiv at like a mega church and you they have to kind of listen to you because you are smarter than them in that sense but not all of us have mdivs and not they're not going to listen to us i mean because i i'm pretty loud and pretty boisterous and even i couldn't even make a budge in my time at this church that I went to anyways. Yeah, yeah, yes. That, I think, is like, a, again, like, yeah, I think a lot of, like, people of color are having those like, conversations of, like, realizing, like, the institutions themselves as churches are, like, white spaces, and they're simply guests, even, again, even if they are on staff, or, like, a lead volunteer or whatever they're given power only to a certain extent but again like the head pastor or like senior management or whatever hr because i'm pretty sure mega churches now have to have hr because all this stuff that's coming out um like are still white and like by white people for white people and so yeah like larger conversations of okay like church planting and like but how do we have access to funds? And like, do we take on all the debt to like create a space that is like anti-racist, like queer affirming, like anti-ableist, like ableist, like all of these things um, in ways that have like longevity and aren't just like a, we're gonna do this and see. But I, but I think again, like, I don't know, I'm kind of like spiritual in the sense, I think the spirit moves um and so like seeing the spirit move in ways of yeah just I I I don't know it's like interesting to like be in two communities at once and see kind of like the tide shifting but then also some days feeling extreme like joy and like hope and then also like the next day like plummeting into despair because of like you know, like the latest revelation on like Hillsong or like Bethel or all of these like mega churches that amounts like incredible like industrial power um, and have a lot of moral authority, but also questioning how and why these like specific people are given, you know, all this access to funds and like research and talent. Um, and it's like how to be on the opposite end of like, okay, so something doesn't exist. We're going to create something. And like, you know, all of those fun technicalities that arise of, you know, being on the other end of things, if you will. Yeah, I think I just can't get over evangelicalism sense of entitlement. Like, even when mm. you leave, right, they're like, well, you should have stayed and changed it if you wanted it to be different. Like, that <laughs> entitlement of, like, my time and effort, they feel entitled to me staying and me mm. being the change in the system. Or even, like, I don't know, they just feel entitled to being the, the head of the conversation. Or at our church, right. we're not an evangelical, Spencer and I go to the same church right now, uh, we're not an evangelical church. And I can't tell you, I, as a person who works there, how many times these white male evangelical people, or female too, but mostly male, have, like, called us up 
to ask to use our fucking parking lot without doing any sort of research about our beliefs and and one of them it's just like frustrating like you want to hold your service in our parking lot but I know that you are going to sing and not wear masks and you didn't do the five seconds of research to know that we're a church that's very COVID friendly and very and these churches like I did my five seconds of research to know that you're not LGBTQIA plus affirming so you didn't do your research to know that we are so why would we let you use our parking lot like Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just that entitlement right. of like being the majority faith in a country or even the political entitlement of like, I don't like abortion, so nobody should get abortions. Like that, like, mm. I don't know. Right. I just can't. It's mostly the time though. Like you think that you're entitled to my time and my effort as a Latinx woman who you're not going to let lead in any sort of capacity, mm-hmm. but I should stay and I should try to enact change in your church. Mm-hmm. I can't deal with that. Yeah. Um, I think this is like, I mean, that's just like white supremacy point blank of like, uh, yeah. And I think like people need to get like comfortable calling it what it is. And like, again, understanding like white supremacy isn't just like the KKK. It is an entire like thought system enacted upon beliefs that like are over and covert. You know, I think a lot of people like hold like racist like conditioning even if they don't want to admit it. Um, and so like I think that like white whiteness like that white entitlement, um, in like terms of like geographic space is very much like a well-researched and studied thing in the sense that, I mean, that's just like a a case and study point of, again, like another aspect of white supremacy of whiteness thinking it owns like a space, even though it, like you were saying, like Josie, like at your church, you're affirming, but feeling as if like, um, like whiteness is superior and can just, by space, by time, by labor, um, because they think oh they own it, because they they because like to them, what why wh- of course you should give me access of course, you know I have like privilege and economic privilege and status and I'm actually doing you a favor by renting out your space so right because we're also like a small church we're and we don't have a lot of money so would we like people to be able to rent our parking lot sure but we're not going to rent it to people that are openly not affirming that just doesn't Mm. look good for us it doesn't it's not we're not doing right by the people in our church who are part of the lgbtqia plus community like we're Mm -hmm. damaging them because they've had to leave these spaces because they were not valued and spencer maybe you can speak to this but maybe evangelicalism can be saved but if it can, I think it's up to the white, straight, or straight-appearing people and not the rest of us. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think as a white woman, a white um, – and because I went to a school like APU and I got a degree in ministry, like, I do feel sort of a sense of responsibility of, like – and not responsibility of, like, oh, only I can do it, but sort of this responsibility to to create the space of – Josie and I wanting to create a podcast and having the conversation of being diligent of like, what voices do we want to bring and what voices do we want to amplify and things like that. And also just knowing like majority of this interview of like, I, I really wanted to listen to you and I really wanted to listen to what you said. And I've been following your Instagram and just, I grew up in, or I became a Christian in a, in a space that was predominantly white and sort of glorified adoption, especially Mm. a transracial adoption Mm. And so, and totally being honest of, I didn't realize it was racist until I was an adult that every time I envisioned adopting a child, it wasn't a white child. And Mm. that's racist because it's a white savior complex and having to re refocus my intentions of why do I want to adopt in the first place? Do I want to adopt just because the church told me it was good? Or do I want to adopt because I, I feel that 
I feel this calling, but even then, like you said, that's the wrong word because people have misused the Bible and misused these verses to sort of justify something that is inherently based in trauma. And it's just, so yeah, that whole aspect is hard. And then like Josie said, of being in a hard space of, I, I have so much privilege of being white and being, um, sort of heteronormative because I'm married to a man and all that kind of stuff. And, um, they're really, really hard questions. And I don't really, I don't think I really have an answer or even a way to process it because I know that I firmly believe kind of just what I said, that if I'm put in a position where my only option is sort of, I will like, again, and I think it's hard because I, I've made the conscious, I've made the conscious effort of, I will never go back to a church that doesn't affirm the calling of women and Mm. going to the church that Josie and I go to now was sort of this step of like, I, I'm making this a decision that I will never go back to a church that doesn't affirm LGBTQ people, but then also Mm -hmm. feeling that tension of like, well, I went to visit my family in Arizona last week and they go to a church that isn't affirming. And I, honestly had a lot of, (laughs) was waiting with my mom to listen to the sermon and had a bunch of in my head of this is going to suck. I'm not going to agree with anything he says. Yet that Mm. pastor, he, dang, he freaking preached. And I agreed with just about everything he said. And it's this hard balance of like, gosh, like he is really like, they're doing good stuff in the community and he's preaching things that I agree with, but there's also fundamental things that I disagree with. And it's a really hard space to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially because even now during COVID, race has kind of hit ahead, right? It's all COVID and race and all this has happened at once. And it's very um, mm-hmm. crazy, but exciting. And I don't know. And I can't help think of like my parents' church. My parents go to this huge mega church in Anaheim, California. It's all Hispanic. And I used to live right behind it. It's yeah, wild. <laughs> it's wild. Pentecostal and it's very charismatic. It's It's their church, right? And they do, like Spencer said, great things in the community. They um, give people furniture if they need furniture. They partner with Costco for that um, because they have the resources. And the this guy is like the most famous Hispanic pastor in Latin America. Um, Mm -hmm. And they do do all this good in the community, right? But then they do crazy shit like rent out Disneyland for conversion. Yes, I actually Whoa. went to this. It was insane. <laughs> um, so they rented out the the theater where Frozen is in Disney California Adventure. And they did the, kind of like a grad night situation where they close early and then mm. everybody else can stay. But members of the church could buy their homies tickets to go to Disneyland from certain times and then stay. But you had to go to like the conversion service, right? And oh it, was just, it was so wild. Like they have that kind of money. They rented out the 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 Dolby Theater, I think it's called now in downtown LA, um, to do like a kind of like a talk show thing that he did to convert people off of Hollywood Boulevard or something. Mm. Um, they're pretty insane, but they don't do social justice, like in a very oh. real way. Like they'll give you furniture, mm. um, but they won't say yeah, the cops really shouldn't be shooting black people or mm. they'll say, we love gay people and you're more than welcome to be here. And we don't, we're not going to be mean to you, which is nice, but then they won't affirm them. Like they won't say, right. like, you're, you're not going to hell. Don't worry about it. You know, it's, <laughs> mm. it's, um, they'll say, you're not going to go to hell if you never have gay sex, but they, <laughs> but as soon as you, as soon have as you sex. have gay sex, <laughs> over, <laughs> membership declined (laughs) yes so it that's almost more infuriating to me like these churches Mm. that are like uh to use biblical terms lukewarm (laughs) (laughs) i just so yeah it's not and i think they are victim of white supremacy right because they're kind of echoing the white american evangelical church in a more hispanic way but still, still very... internalizing these narratives mm-hmm. like how church is done and like yeah I'm, I'm guessing like if you just took like head pastor out and put a white person in like mm-hmm. you couldn't even like tell the difference 
Yeah. And um, granted, there was, there's not a whole lot of adoption that happens in Hispanic communities, probably because of like socioeconomic status and cultural, mm. there's not a lot of adoption because if you can't, I mean, there is like, you, if you can't care for your child, you give it to your cousin or your aunt or your mom or whatever, like someone mm. takes and your family takes care of your own child. And, and I think in South Korea, it's a similar thing, right? There's not a whole lot of adoption that happens within like kinship care. Yes. Mm. Like in our country. Yeah, I think that like um, that's in the conversation on like shame and like um, like the same culture, um, just like the history of like South Korea in general. Um, after like the Korean War, like the that's how like how adoption was started because of like all of these like mixed race children because of like you know comfort women, um, and like U.S. soldiers like, I mean, you raping love white Korean dudes, women. Right? <laughs> Uh, and so that's that's how like the entire system got started because of um, like the sense of shame and like having like mixed race children and so like the U.S. again like constructing adoption using like a neo-colonial tie to raise a win-win situ- win-win situation for everyone but the adoptees basically um, the uh, Korean economy gets a reboot. U.S. gets to do global rehab on its image of like we're humanitarian, we're a Christian nation, we're going to take care of these orphans that we created, basically. But we're not going to tell you we created these orphans. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's been like a model that's been like transplanted to like other countries as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a just different conversation on like shame and like cultural connotation. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, all that to say, I didn't grow up with adoption outside of Angelina Jolie, but uh, <laughs> in my frame of view, um, I forgot what I was going to say. But yeah, it's a uh, shit's wild in the evangelical church, you know. <laughs> well, white supremacy I, is weird. I was gonna, I was gonna say too, though. Um, honestly, it it's so much even more than evangelical church. I, I had, I've been thinking about it of like what like exposure to transracial adoption and all that and it was it just like from the church but I remember Mm. in eighth grade I went to a public school in eighth grade I don't know why but we watched a video about um like Chinese adoption agencies like Chinese specifically like Chinese daughters because of their Mm. one child rule and basically of a lot of times if their first child was a was a was a girl they wouldn't report it they would like take them somewhere or so like heartbreaking like put them in dumpsters and try to get rid of them and so this organization would round up all these little girls and then get them adopted into the United States I have no idea why we watched this in school I don't even I'm pretty sure we watched it I'm pretty sure we watched well yeah I I watched in our English class and that that teacher she was wild she was very like let's push the political limits for eighth graders um (laughs) But so Radicalize I remember the youths. <laughs> honestly, yeah, because in, this is a fun fact in my school district, the book To Kill a Mockingbird was banned and mm. she wanted us to read it. So she hid it. She had this giant cupboard in her classroom that she hid it in the back of the cupboard when like the school district would come and like look, watch our classroom. And then after their evaluations were done, she would take it out and she would read it to us and do like character voices. Like it's one mm. of my favorite books because of the way she presented it. Um, but yeah, anyway, so again, just, I think it even extends past the evangelical church because I had exposure in a public school and I know just other people of, I mean, in, in media of something like teen mom, they glorify this sort of, I mean, it's, it's both glorified, but also really real of like, oh, we're going to give up our daughter for adoption. We're going to show you how hard it is, but also we're going to put it on a pedestal of this was the absolute best choice we could make. And it's this weird thing of what like yeah maybe it was the best choice but was it really the best choice like so many questions in gray areas that is presented in that yeah yeah I think that's been something that I've been interested in um in looking more in depth yet of like the cultural connotations of adoption and like again like like you're saying Spencer it's not just I think white evangelicalism is like one demographic but it's even like like how adoption like again like is a tool that's being used to feed into like this um 
like racist myth of, of America and like how that continues and is perpetuated by like various media outlets and TV shows. And it's just like embedded into like the consciousness then because we are consumers and we are like even subconsciously like receiving these messages all the time of like power, privilege, you know, that happens with adoption. So, yeah. And yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't have any answers for y'all that are listening. <laughs> we um just have great points, if I do say so myself. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to end this conversation other than. Uh, I think, again, just from the like growing up in a predominantly white circle in the church group. And I know that I wasn't the only church girl that had these beautiful dreams of a rainbow family adopted from the nations in my home. And I think I would put out, I would put out a challenge specifically to the white evangelicals listening, especially if you're a white woman that has these dreams of adopting. I really Mm. want to challenge you of why do you have this dream? Where did this dream come from? Do you think that this is feeding into racism, into white supremacy, into systems mm. of injustice. And and I'm not I'm not discouraging adoption as a whole because I think that I think when the research and the time is taken that it can be done in a in a way to the best of it, its ability, acknowledging that there's always trauma in the center of it. But really, why do you want to adopt? And and do you think that you're going to feed into this system and I think that's just my challenge of really really understanding where it came from and why you want this because um like I said earlier like I've been deconstructing that a lot and having hard conversations Josie and I have talked about it a little bit of like maybe I shouldn't adopt non-white children maybe that's just something I need to come to terms with because I've had this dream that maybe is not a good thing to be dreaming about yeah um my other challenge to white people wanting to adopt African babies or Asian babies or Russian babies are a new thing but you know they're white so whatever I'm just kidding (laughs) um why my challenge would be to ask you why not sign up for foster care you know Mm. why don't you want to foster children in America is it because of the accountability is it because it's uh, Mm. tedious is it because you don't want kids from lower socioeconomic statuses or in typical situations that are American um Mm. that's my challenge I I, just to clarify mine of I again I think that's a good topic to bring up because mine also covers in the uh when you're fostering children fostering to adopt again of taking the time to understand that if you are fostering children that are a different race, ethnicity, coming from a different social economic background, that those have real implications and you need to take them seriously. Not just, I'm going to adopt a baby from another country because yeah, I think that's another thing of there is a rise of people wanting to do foster care, which is great, but also the system is broken. It will always be broken. We're broken people Mm -hmm. and just being humble and saying, I don't know it all. And if I have, and this is, I'm preaching to myself, if I have black children, if I have Asian children, if I have Hispanic children, even if I have white children that come just from a completely different place than I do, that I don't know everything in my way of the way I was raised doesn't mean it's better or right. And learning about their individual stories and their individual cultures. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a good place to say (laughs) bye-bye um obviously I'm very professional podcaster um Sarah why don't you give us a little bit of a plug just a little recap on all the things that you do tell the people where to follow you etc etc yeah so you can follow me um on my Instagram account um at an adoptee talks back I post on like the I'll create content whatever like the professional languages I um, about like the intersections of Christianity, white supremacy, and adoption. Occasionally touch on ableism, um, but yeah, you can follow me there. Um, I'd love to see you over there connecting um, all of these communities that we're a part of all the time um, in one space. So, Don't forget yeah. Recoalition. Oh yes, Recoalition. 
my co my coworkers or whatever would be co founders would be very upset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's uh on on Instagram at R E re dot coalition, right? Yeah, R E dot coalition. Yep. There you go. Yes. And as yeah. for us, you can find me personally at Josie Takes the World on Instagram or at Josie Takes the on Twitter. And you can find me at Spencer Rose. That's one R S P E N C E R O S E on Instagram. And you can find me on Twitter at Snowball underscore. And like always, we love you. Jesus loves you. And you can find us on the podcast on Speaking in Church. I think it's just Speaking in Church on Instagram. Yeah, Speaking or... Church on Instagram, Speaking Church on Twitter. And speaking in church at gmail.com if you want to bitch at us. That's fine. <laughs> be prepared. I'm very well informed. Um, yeah, we love you. And if you're uh, not woke, get woke. Stay woke <laughs> or get woke. Bye. Bye.